right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. John 12, starting in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the blessing of being gathered together in your name. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of giving us your word. And Lord, we thank you that it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Father, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would bless it to be unto the edification of your people and the conversion of those who do not know you. Lord, be glorified in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up again in our series in John's Gospel. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, it is our regular practice to simply preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and as I prayed, is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, we believe that Scripture stands alone. It is in a category unto itself, uh, being uniquely given to us by God, uniquely breathed out by God. We believe as well that pastors have a duty not to shrink back, but to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And so while we will occasionally... Uh, preach topical sermons. Uh, it is our regular practice to simply proclaim the Word of God, uh, to explain what it means, and to apply it to the heart uh, of the hearers, uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, so to that end, we've been working through the Gospel of John, uh, and we pick up now where we left off in chapter 12. So to recap where we're at in the story, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and more than that, he knows that he has really come to lay his life down. The arrest warrant has gone out for Jesus. The authorities have been told to report. If anybody knows, uh, they've told the people to report the whereabouts of Jesus. If anybody knows where he is, that he may be arrested. And so Jesus has gone into Jerusalem, eyes wide open, fully aware of what is awaiting him. So here we are now in Jerusalem, sometime after the triumphal entry, and in verse 20, we saw that there were some Greeks, some Gentiles, coming to seek Jesus. 
We are in the middle now of Jesus' answer to their request to see him. So as we looked at, their arrival seems to have been some kind of a signal for Christ who declares that the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, we've seen again and again Jesus saying, my, my time is not yet come. My, my hour is not yet. He escaped because his hour had not yet come. Now we get this shift. As Jesus says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus then spoke of the trouble within his own soul, uh, but then stated his commitment to fulfill his Father's will. And we pick up now with verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So with the focus here of Jesus' prayer being on the way in which the Father would be glorified through him, it's very likely that the response of the Father is also talking about Christ's ministry. The Father responds from heaven saying, I have glorified my name. I have glorified it. I have been glorifying my name uh, and likely meaning through Christ's ministry to this point. Right? God has been glorifying his name through the teachings of Christ. As Jesus says that he only spoke what the Father had told him to speak. And God has also been glorifying his name through the works that Christ performed. The signs and wonders that Jesus had been doing. Jesus referred to these as the works that the Father had given him to do in John 5.36. So I have glorified it through your ministry, through your obedience. And God says, the Father says, I will glorify it again. So again, if the Father is responding to Christ's petition and speaking of glorifying his name through Christ, then this promise is likely that he will glorify it through the death and resurrection of Christ. Right? I have glorified it. I will continue to glorify my name through you. Now that would be a very comforting answer to Jesus. Right? For just as God has been glorifying his name through his son, so too he promises that he will continue to do so. So the past works that the father has done through his son testify that the father will not abandon him in the future. This will not all be for nothing. Though in his death Christ will be made an object of reproach to the father as he has made sin for us, Christ will also be raised and exalted, right? This will all be for the Father's glory. The Father will glorify himself through the resurrection of Jesus. So he points to what he has done in the past and promises to continue to do so in the future, right? And this pattern is also how we ought to look at to take similar comfort. Uh, it functions similarly for us, right? So we look at what God has done in the past and this gives us confidence that God will be faithful in the future. Jesus here is preparing to undergo the greatest trial that will ever be experienced by anyone. Again, not just the pain of the cross, but remember, having the iniquity of his people punished in him. And in order to comfort him, the Father points to his past works and gives him a promise for the future. And so as we face trials, as we seek to imitate our Lord in bearing up well under suffering, we can find comfort in the same way. 
For we too have been given promises by God about the future. He has promised forgiveness, eternal life, an eternal and imperishable inheritance for all who come to Christ in repentance and faith. For his people, he promises to be with them, to grant them the grace and strength they need in every situation to honor him. But there are times, if we're honest, when it feels like we are up against it. There are times when our sorrows and the troubles of our hearts overwhelm us. In such moments, what can we do? Look to the promises of God. And look to the past faithfulnesses of God, the way that he has been faithful in the past, to give you confidence that he is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who keeps covenant. Read the Old Testament and read of God's faithfulness and see how he fulfilled every single one of his promises. And look, of course, to Christ, who is the greatest fulfillment of the promises of God, in whom they are all yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20. God has glorified his name. We see that in his past graces, what he has done, keeping his promises, sending his son to accomplish redemption. We know that God has glorified his name even in our personal lives. Consider God's past faithfulness to you, the ways in which God has drawn you to himself, how he has carried you through trials, how God has given you past graces, sustaining you through even the hardest times in your life, preserving your faith, holding you fast through those trials. God is faithful to his promises. And he has proven his faithfulness definitively through Christ. So let that bring you comfort in the moment of trial, in the moment of difficulty. God has glorified his name. You have seen his past grace and his past faithfulness. And he will glorify his name through fulfilling the promises he has made to his people. Take comfort in this. Verse 29 The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now that is an interesting statement, right? John just told us that the crowd that was there didn't understand what was said, right? There was kind of two camps, some who thought it was just some thunder, others who thought that maybe an angel had spoken, So how can Jesus say that the voice was for their sake when they themselves didn't even understand what was said? And also, uh, wouldn't it be in some sense for Christ's sake that he would be encouraged in this way? So to answer those questions, firstly, we see that Jesus is consistently aware of the Father's will. So the first answer is that Jesus does not need an audible voice since he has a special connection to the Father. So the fact that God did something at all, audible, uh, Jesus says, isn't for him, right? He, He doesn't need it to be audible. He is aware of the Father's will. He has perfect communion with the Father. Secondly, regardless of whether or not they understood it at the time, and in spite of the skeptics who thought it was only thunder, um, as we have now the record of what God said, right, given uh, likely through Christ, 
to John himself, one of the twelve. Uh, because we do have the record uh, and there were witnesses who heard something audible happen, uh, what we have is still another affirmation of the Father of his Son. Right? You have another instance of God the Father testifying about his Son. And so as D.A. Carson notes, the message recorded in verse 28 is for the enormous benefit of the disciples amongst the bystanders. Once they have lived through the period of the cross, and find themselves in urgent need of making sense of it all. We see this again and again through the Gospels, that as these events were happening, uh, as things were happening to Jesus, even as he was uh, being arrested and crucified, the disciples did not understand what was happening. They did not get it all in the moment, uh, but after Jesus was raised, uh, it all began to fall into place. And so upon reflection... Uh, this would be helpful. This would be for their sake to remember, oh yeah, God the Father actually did speak audibly to the Son. Uh, And so this voice would be of a benefit for all who hear, and particularly for all who would read this account and know what it was that the Father had said. It would truly prove to be for their sake. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus, remember, has been speaking about his own death and resurrection. And now he declares, now is the judgment of the world. Right? Now is the judgment of the world. Simply by virtue of who Jesus is, his presence divides. Now, the most important thing about a person, right, these big questions of who they are, who they are becoming, who and where they will be for eternity, forever, all hinges on this question. How do you respond to Jesus? He is the light of the world. As the light shines in the darkness, it forces a division. Evildoers hate the light. They flee from the light. John tells us they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But others, drawn by the Father, born again by the Spirit, come to the light. They receive the light and no longer walk in darkness. Everything comes down to Christ. While the final judgment is not yet, that is still in our future, there is a sense in which this judgment began with the first coming of Christ, right? All humanity divides around him. And so in another twist of irony, where the world thought they were passing judgment on Jesus, right? Climactically passing judgment on him at the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. God, the son, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when the world, when sinful men rejected him and crucified him, who was really being judged? The rejection of the Son is the rejection of God. All those who reject the Son have passed judgment on themselves. Now is the judgment of the world. And the next part of the verse 
now will the ruler of the world be cast out. We actually see further irony, for we know that the cross, in some sense, was Satan's idea. Remember, Luke 22, verse 3 says that it was Satan who entered into Judas before he went uh, to set out to betray Christ. And so the cross appears to be the triumph of Satan, the triumph of evil, successfully murdering God the Son. But in a dramatic twist, the cross will actually be the defeat of Satan. Like Haman hanging on the gallows which he built for Mordecai. Satan's schemes, in this case, will be his own downfall. There is a real sense in which the coming of the king had begun the defeat of Satan. And if you read through the Gospels, you see this play out throughout the ministry of Jesus. Consider that Satan fails for the first time ever in seeking to tempt a human. Right? Jesus defeated him at the wilderness temptation. Up until that point, Satan was batting a thousand. Right? He had never failed to, in, in his temptation of a human. Right? This is a dramatic moment. The coming of Christ's kingdom has been bringing freedom and deliverance to those who had been under the tyranny of the dominion of darkness. Remember that throughout his ministry, Jesus has been defeating Satan and his minions at every turn. People whom Satan had bound, Jesus refers to this one lady who had a disabling spirit as someone whom Satan had kept bound for 18 years, and Jesus delivers her, Luke 13, 16. Jesus cast out many demons, and he even sent out his disciples, and they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we see that the coming of Christ, uh, the breaking in of his kingdom, has marked a dramatic shift. It is the beginning of the defeat of Satan and the plundering of his kingdom. Turn with me to Luke 11, and we'll see this unfold from verse 14. Luke 11, from verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Right, so Jesus has now cast out this demon and been accused of doing it by the power of Satan. Right? You are demonic. You're wielding a demonic power as you cast out demons. Jesus responds that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Right? Satan's kingdom would collapse. He is not going to be divided against himself. And Jesus goes on, For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So does Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan or by the finger of God? Well, that should be an easy one. Therefore, he says, if it's by the finger of God, then what you have here, what you are seeing now in the casting out of these demons testifies that the kingdom has come. This is warfare between two kingdoms. You are seeing my kingdom pushing back against the kingdom of darkness, taking ground and plundering it. Jesus then gives an illustration. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So demons are being cast out. There is a kingdom that is losing ground, a kingdom that is being plundered. So who is the strong man and who is the stronger man? Satan's kingdom is the one that is under attack. One stronger than he has been attacking and overcoming him. Jesus says that the casting out of demons by the finger of God means that the kingdom has come upon them. And so we see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. He defeated Satan in the wilderness temptation. He granted his, uh, his disciples special authority to trample over the power of the enemy, declaring he saw Satan fall like lightning. We see Jesus, the stronger man, conquering and plundering Satan's kingdom, setting free the prisoners, releasing the captives, and sending the demons packing. So through his ministry, the kingdom has been breaking in and already making an impact. But we see that the definitive victory will come at the cross. As Jesus says, now will the ruler of the world, of this world, be cast out. And D.A. Carson comments, the fundamental smashing of Satan's reign of tyranny takes place in the death slash exaltation of Jesus. And I believe that part of what this means is revealed in the next statement. Jesus continues on in John chapter 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, from the earth will draw all people to myself. So uh, just to put the clutch in for a moment and address uh, a bit of an apologetics issue, um, we have to look at this question, what does Jesus mean when he says that he will draw all people? Now, this may be a familiar passage to you, uh, particularly if you've ever debated with someone about the doctrines of grace. This text is frequently the go-to response in order to answer John 6.44. If you remember back to that text uh, when we preached through it, in John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that's an important verse because it's a direct statement about the capacity of man. Right? Jesus says, apart from the work of God in our hearts, no one can come. No one is able to come. It requires an intervention from God. God must draw us. And so you can then see why John 12, 32 is given as the rebuttal. For here in John 12, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So the argument goes, yes, grace is necessary. The drawing of the Father is necessary. But it's something that God does for all people. And since not all people will be saved in the end, 
This drawing is therefore not effectual. It simply makes salvation possible. Uh, that's, that's the argument. But what are the problems with this? Firstly, I hope you can see this is not the way to do exegesis. Right? So rather than working through John 6, following the flow of thought, following the points that Jesus makes, this rebuttal jumps out of John 6, goes over to John 12, attempts to grab a meaning from that text, which is then forced back upon John 6 to make it mean something different. Now that is very, very poor exegesis. Uh, you actually make a mash out of both texts. Uh, so turn with me, we'll, we'll just deal with this question. Uh, we'll go briefly back to John chapter 6. Uh, if you actually let John 6 speak, you'll see that Jesus is consistent throughout that passage. He speaks of a particular people whom the Father has given to him. He declares in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. Jesus declares that it is the will of the Father that I lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. He then declares in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God has given a particular people to the Son. Scripture speaks often of the elect, uh, those who have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Jesus says, all those whom the Father gives him will come. Those who come will not be cast out. It is the Father's will that he should not lose any of those who have been given to him. And then he declares that apart from the drawing of the Father, no one can come. No one is able to come. And then notice this. Jesus establishes a link between those who are drawn in this way and those who are raised on the last day. See that in verse 44. Look with me to the text. What is the result of being drawn by the Father? And I will raise him up on the last day. So if you assert that God draws all men without exception in the way Jesus describes in John 6, 44, you've just become a universalist, right? You then have to say that all people will be saved for the result of being drawn by the Father in John 6, 44 is being raised up on the last day. Right? You become a universalist. But if you'll read this in its context, you'll find it actually makes perfect sense. James White writes this, who does Jesus raise up on the last day? Verse 39 says that he raises all those given to him by the Father. Verse 40, he says he raises all who are looking and believing in him. Verse 44 says he raises all who are drawn by the Father. The identity of those who are raised to life on the last day is absolutely coextensive with the identity of those who are drawn. If a person is drawn he will also be raised up to eternal life, close quote. There are other problems as well with this view of using John 12 this way. For if John 12 is the exegetical key to understanding what Jesus really meant in John 6, then the question comes, how could anybody have understood what Jesus meant in John 6? Or do you think of the people to whom he was speaking, right? How were they supposed to understand his point? John 12 is a completely different context. 
It is a different time. It is in a different place where Jesus is making a different point to a different group of people. Right? How are those Jews in John 6 supposed to understand him if the key is only going to come months later in a different place uh, while he makes a different point? Right? To try to make this argument makes a mash of both texts. So, to return back now to John 12, 32, we ask, what does Jesus mean in this context when he says that he will draw all people to himself? Well, the key, as usual, is found in the context. D.A. Carson compares the different contexts of John 6 and John 12 and says, there, John 6, 44, the focus is on those individuals whom the Father gives to the Son, whom the Son infallibly preserves and raises up at the last day. Here, the statement, all men, reminds the reader of what triggered these statements, which was the arrival of the Greeks, and it means all people without distinction, Jews and Gentiles alike, close quote. So remember, to return to our context in John 12, the Greeks had come seeking Jesus, and Jesus' attention had now turned to his own death and resurrection and what it would bring about. And he has said, it will bring about the judgment of the world. Now is the ruler of the world to be cast out. And through Christ's death, all people will be drawn. Charles Ellicott comments, The drawing unto himself is the assertion of his reign over the world, from which the prince of evil shall be cast out. He will himself be the center of the new kingdom from which none shall be shut out. These Greeks who are drawn to him now are the first fruits of the harvest of which the whole world is the field and of which the last day is to be the great ingathering. So Jesus making this statement is talking about the fact that the gospel is now going to go to the nations. Right? Consider up until this point, the nations had been walking in darkness. The peoples of the world worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that what the pagans offered to their idols was really being given to demons. Right? And aside from the occasional reluctant prophet sent to Nineveh, or apart from the occasional oracle to the nations, Satan's reign over the nations was relatively unchallenged. Right? They were under the dominion of darkness. This would change at the cross. For Christ has declared his kingdom will spread to all nations like leaven through the loaf. And we know this, for among those people whom the Father has given to the Son, as mentioned in John 6, are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ would ransom them for God, Revelation 5.9. And so the coming of Christ and the climax of his coming represented by the cross marks a dramatic turning point in redemptive history. It is a dramatic broadening. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says this of the Messiah, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus Christ came 
not just for the Jews, but to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Christ saves sinners through the gospel, they are being transferred from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son, in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ's kingdom has been advancing, and though the devil is still active in this world and we must be on guard against him, he cannot stop the advance of Christ's kingdom. Christ will receive the reward for his sufferings. All that the Father has given him will come to him. All those whom he has purchased will be raised up. Salvation comes, and it comes even to the ends of the earth. And so it is that we are here now, right, living in those ends of the earth from where this is written, salvation having reached us through Christ, the light of the world, right, as Christ has been drawing all peoples to himself. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus said he would be lifted up from the earth. Now on the cross, this was literal, as this method of execution would lift its victim up from the ground in order to hang on the cross. And it may also be another use of irony. For as we've seen in John, Christ's death and resurrection are described as his glorification. He is being lifted up. And as he is lifted up, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, will be drawn. The crowd then asks a question, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So remember in this conversation back beginning in verse 23, Jesus has spoken of the Son of Man needing to die like a seed being planted in order to be glorified and bring about a harvest. Um, Jesus has said he will be lifted up in death. And so now the people respond being confused. They are puzzled by Jesus speaking about the death of the Son of Man. They say that in the law, it says that the Christ remains forever. Right? How can you say he will be lifted up? Right? He's supposed to be here for eternity. What is this now about his death? Now, they don't mention which particular Old Testament passages they have in mind, uh, there, but there would be many uh, which would have been referring to the victory and eternality of the Messiah. So they are very puzzled and begin to ask, who is this son of man? Now, Jesus has clearly been talking about himself, so they're not likely asking for an identification of the Son of Man, uh, but rather asking, what is this concept of the Son of Man? What is your idea of the Son of Man? What kind of Son of Man or Messiah is this of whom it can be said that he will die? Or this appears to be totally foreign to their messianic expectations. And if we remember that this gospel would have been an evangelistic tool, we can see that it is a very relevant question for John to address. For as the gospel goes forth, as the Christians are declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, this would be one of the key questions 
that an interested or thoughtful Jew would be grappling with. Right? For they know Jesus died a criminal's death, but that doesn't fit at all with what they believed about the Messiah. Right? We've always believed the Messiah would do and be something other than that. Now, Jesus didn't directly address their question, didn't directly answer it. But those readers of John's gospel with the eyes to see would know that he has already done so. They will also see that it will be further demonstrated through John's gospel. For Jesus will not stay in the grave, but he will be raised. And as he will tell his disciples, he is going to return to his father where he will be exalted. He will sit at the right hand of the Father, receiving an everlasting dominion, just as was prophesied of the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus was a king who came to conquer in a different way than the people of the day expected. He came to conquer different enemies than what the people seemed to have expected, and he rules and reigns differently than expected. Jesus came to conquer sin, death, and Satan. He died on the cross, taking the penalty for sins that was due to fall on his people. He grants his spirit to them, delivering them from the power and bondage of sin. He rose from the dead and purchased eternal life for them, such that now we can say, because he lives, we too shall live. And he snatches them from the dominion of darkness to bring them into his kingdom. He is at the right hand of the Father, where he reigns and where he ever lives to intercede for his people. And he now offers forgiveness of sins. He offers freedom from the power of sin and the dominion of darkness. He offers life, spiritual and eternal, to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. Now this would all be revealed in time, but in that moment, Jesus said this, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus himself is the light. And he will soon be taken. He will die. He calls these people to walk by his light, that is, to believe and to follow him, so that when the darkness comes, it will not overtake them, it will not sweep them away. But if they will believe in the light, they will become sons of light. So to return to the question, what kind of son of man is this? What kind of Messiah is this who would die? The answer this is the perfect Son of Man. This is the perfect Messiah. For as we who are in Christ know, as we have discovered firsthand, all who come to him in repentance and faith find him to be a perfect Savior, a perfect King. For he was lifted up for us. He came to do and to be what we really needed. So we praise him for his grace and mercy. We honor him as king. We obey him as our master. 
and we herald the good news to all. Jesus is the perfect Messiah. He is the perfect Savior. He purchased freedom from sin, death, and Satan. And so the invitation goes out to all who are here. Come to Christ and become sons of light. And then live in all things to lift up the name of the Son of Man. Amen.